So if you have Bibles, I would encourage you to open your Bibles to the book of Philippians. Once again, we'll be looking at Philippians chapter 2. And before we read the scripture, there's a general principle that we should all be aware of. And that principle is knowing who someone is changes how you relate to them. I have a funny example in my own life. There was a point in time a number of years ago in which my wife, Michaeline, was a bridesmaid in a wedding, but yet I had no role. And so I had to be at all these things, but I had nothing to do, like many of the men who were either the boyfriends or the husbands of other bridesmaids. And so what do we do? Well, we gather together, we sit together, and we make some small talk. And so while my wife is involved in this, in this wedding rehearsal, I'm sitting there talking with one individual in particular whose wife is also in the wedding party, and he was very friendly, you know, sharing his thoughts on um, what he thought of the wedding and particularly what he thought about religion. And I can remember this conversation going on for a good 5, 10, 15 minutes of him uninterrupted sharing with me how church is dumb, church is boring, Christians are a bunch of judgmental hypocrites, and on and on and on it went, and I'm sitting there, and you guys can kind of imagine where this was going. After he had done his tirade against Christians and the church, he finally asked me a question and said, so what do you do for a living? Well, I'm a pastor. Um, Had he known that, I imagine that conversation would have went very differently. But knowing who someone is changes how you relate to them. That is an example here in my own life, but the example that we're going to look at this morning is asking ourselves, do we really know who Jesus is? Are we relating to him as we should, given the knowledge of who he is? See, many of us think we know who Jesus is. Maybe we think he was a man. Maybe we look to him as a good teacher, maybe even a prophet of God. But do you see Jesus as God, who always was God and is God even today, who became a man, who died for your sins and for mine, and who is our risen and exalted Savior? Many of us know this in this room. Some of us may not, but yet we all need to be reminded of it. And so that's what we're going to be looking at this morning as we dive into a well-loved and read and often referred to passage in Philippians. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. And so if you would, if you're willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? The word of God says in verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of God this morning. You may be seated. 
So my expectation is that many of you are probably familiar with these verses, but nevertheless, there is a lot to unpack here. And so we're going to make two points this morning, have two focuses, and the first is going to be the humiliation of Jesus. Some of you may respond to that kind of negatively. What do you mean the humiliation of Jesus? Essentially what I mean is the humble nature of Jesus. That part of his divine being and nature and character is that he is humble. And he humbled himself, as we'll see, to the point of actual humiliation, death on a cross. And then we'll turn and we'll look at the exaltation of Jesus, how he has now been glorified by God the Father because of his humility. But we'll start with the humiliation. In what ways is Jesus humble? I have three subpoints for this. The first is that Jesus is humble even in his deity. We see this in verse 6. A reading from the ESV, and the ESV puts it this way, referring to Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Translation of New Testament Greek can be difficult at times to be as close to word for word as is humanly possible, but yet also convey its meaning. In many ways, I prefer the ESV translation for a number of reasons. But some of these things can be hard to grasp from these words here. And so if you were to look to another translation, which is also a good one, NIV puts it this way. Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. You see, this word that is being used here for form is a Greek word called morphe, which has to do with the essence of something. It's its very substance, its essence, not just its appearance. An analogy that was used for maybe our, our own ability to understand that is as people, our, our outward appearance can change at times. You can go from a young child to a youth, to a teenager, to an adult, to a senior again. But in your nature, in your morphe, you are always human. And so that is how this is being used here, that Christ was and is and always has been God. His essence, his nature, who he was in substance is divine. We know Jesus to be the second person of the Trinity. As Christians, we believe in one God who exists in three persons. Christ is one of those persons. He has always existed, was never created, and there are many scriptures to speak to this matter that I would like to share with you this morning because fundamentally we must see Jesus as divine. We can sometimes miss it because he's so humble in nature, but he is nevertheless divine. John 1, verses 1 through 3, famous passage that speaks of the divinity of Jesus, the pre-incarnate Christ, says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And so we have this divine Word. Well, who is the Word? It is Jesus. If we were to read on in John, John 1, 14, we would see something quite remarkable. John 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, 
and we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. This is Jesus. He existed before his incarnation, before he was born in that Bethlehem story that we all know so well, that he was the word and he was with God in the very beginning and all things were made through him. Other passages in the New Testament that speak of the divinity of Christ are Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. It's speaking of Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That if you see Jesus, you see God. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, very similar. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Christ is God. He is divine. This is not something he became, but something that he always was. The eternal second person of the Trinity. But yet he is humble in nature. You know, each member of the Trinity, although they are one God, they serve specific roles. And one of the roles that Christ served through eternity past to eternity future is one of a humble servant. Not glorifying himself, but glorifying his Father in heaven. Jesus is not a self-exalting person or self-glorifying person, but he is humble in nature this is why his maybe presence in the Old Testament can seem to be veiled. That who is this incarnate person, Jesus? Is he in the Old Testament? I think there are some examples in which we can see evidence of a pre-incarnate second person of the Trinity. These are called theophanies, in which the angel of the Lord appears to an Old Testament person and actually is worshipped and receives that worship. A lot of times a natural reaction for a human when seeing an angel is to bow down and worship. And if it is not the pre-incarnate Christ, they say, stop, do not do that. That is breaking of one of the Ten Commandments. You shall only worship the one God. Yet there are a few examples in which someone like Abraham or Jacob or even Gideon bow down before the angel of the Lord and they worship that angel and they receive it. I think this is evidence of a pre-incarnate Christ appearing in some sort of physical manifestation before his incarnation. And yet he's veiled, he's humble. And the thing is, he never uses his deity for his own advantage. By his very nature, he is a servant. And so any majesty, any power, any deity that he has is not used to glorify himself, but to glorify God and serve the people of his creation. There's an illustration that I have for this principle here. I want you to imagine a prince who one day will be king and who will have to defend his country, potentially going into battle with the armies of his country. And so this prince must be trained. And if this is kind of back with medieval times and knights and all that sort of stuff, that would happen through, through sparring. That guards, that soldiers, they would have to teach this young prince how to fight. But yet, nevertheless, you could imagine how awkward that may be for some of these guards because in most countries and nations throughout time, it would be illegal 
to physically harm a member of a royal family. And so this prince has to willfully give up that advantage, that it's illegal to strike him so that he could be trained and equipped to accomplish a goal, a goal of protecting his people. Now, a spoiled prince, a bratty prince, a self-righteous prince could think very much of themselves, demand glory and honor be given to them, and not allow his sparring partners to strike him. But what advantage would that be in the long run? That would not help him. In the same way, Jesus never presumed upon his divine nature, never exacted or demanded particular forms of worship or acknowledgement, but he allowed himself to be humbled to be a servant so that he could protect his people, us, not by fighting with a sword, by giving of his life. Jesus uses these things, his nature as divine God, for the benefit of his people, of creation. I want you to think for just a moment, you may be familiar with the life and ministry of Jesus, You may know that early on in his ministry, he went out into the desert, fasted for 40 days, was hungry, and at the peak of his hunger was tempted by Satan. If you are God, turn these stones into bread. As God, he had the power, the ability, the advantage to grasp that and to perform that action for himself, but he did not. That would be self-serving. But in case we doubted that he did have these powers, flash forward to later in his ministry when he's on the hill, he had finished teaching, and now there's all these people who are hungry. He takes three loaves of bread, two fish, multiplies them to feed 5,000. This is another good picture of Christ not using his divine nature for his own advantage, but to serve others. You see, Jesus is not a grasper, but a giver. This is where I do like the translation of the ESV. In verse 6, look at the end of this. It says that he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be held on for himself, but a way in which he could give of himself to others. This is the humble nature of Christ. He is not a grasper, but a giver because he is humble in nature. And so we see Jesus' humility even in his divine nature, but we particularly see it in his incarnation. This is our second sub-point under the humiliation of Christ, that he is humble in his incarnation. Look with me at verse 7. It says, But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. This is the eternal person of Jesus, who is divine, who is preexistent, who adds humanity to his very nature. And the way it's described here in verse 7 is by emptying himself. And we often think of emptying as, as subtracting, right? Jesus did not lose any part of his divine being. So this is not subtraction in the common sense that we think of. It's actually subtraction through addition by adding humanity unto himself. He is emptying himself and he is making himself nothing. He is laying aside, again, those rights, those privileges, that glory, that honor, and he's humbling himself to the point of becoming one of his created beings, thus forever being fully God and fully man, 
A.W. Tozer writes this, that this is an example of Jesus's veiled deity, not his voided deity. He did not cease being God, but his divine nature was veiled through his humanity. He made himself nothing. And again, this is a difficult concept for understanding. If it's hard enough to imagine an eternal God who exists in three persons, add to the fact that one of those persons is now fully God and fully man. And so how can we begin to understand this? Well, there's a great illustration by another pastor whom I follow, who I admire, named Brian Chapel, And he recalls an interaction that he had while on a missionary trip visiting some Christians in a village in Africa. And while there, there was a, a tragic accident. A man actually fell down a well and broke his leg, and no one was able to get him out. No one was strong enough. No one was big enough, with the exception of the chief of this village. Now, in order to become chief of this village, you were the strongest, the mightiest, the most dignified. And to show this, not only was it just in your own stature and your own strength, but you were adorned with this sort of royalty, this glory that the chief always wore an elaborate headdress and ceremonial robes. But yet in this instance, he was the only one strong enough and capable enough to descend down into that well to save that man. And so what Brian Chapel witnessed was the chief in all of his glory taking off his headdress, laying aside, disrobing himself, bringing in some ways humiliation upon himself, being so mildly clothed in this instance, descending down into a well, dirtying himself, coming under this man and lifting him up and rescuing him. And the reason why this illustration is so helpful is because Brian Chapel asks, did this man ever cease being the chief of this village? When he took off those royal garments, when he set them aside, did that change who he was? No. But it did show what kind of chief he was. One willing to lay aside that glory, that honor, that he could have used for his own advantage, demanding that others try, that others make effort. But no, he became a servant. And that is ultimately what Jesus did when he took on humanity as part of his nature. It was how he came to serve. And this is what Jesus came to do. He described it himself, that he came to serve, not to be served. And that we are to be like him in this regard. The disciples didn't always understand this in their life and ministry as they followed Jesus, thinking that if we could be at his right hand, we could have honor, we could have glory, we could have advantage for ourselves. We, these lowly, unqualified fishermen of men, can rise to the highest of heights through our association with Jesus. You see them argue with one another, jockeying for position with one another, and we see them rebuked by Jesus. In Matthew 20, verses 25 through 28, Jesus responds to this rivalry and this hope that these disciples would use their association with Jesus for their own advantage. This is what Jesus says. Verse 25 of Matthew 20. But Jesus called to them, or sorry, but Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them it shall not be so among you. 
but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is why Jesus came. This is why Jesus humbled himself and became human, entering into this sinful and broken world that you and I live, that he may serve us. And if we are followers of Jesus, then we too are to be servants like Jesus. He models for us the type of servanthood that you and I are to live. A great example in the life and ministry of Jesus is the night in which he washed his disciples' feet. Again, no one willing to do what was customary at the time, that when you would come for a meal, that you would wash the feet of your guests. A very lowly job, a very disgusting job, quite honestly. And no one would do it except for Jesus, who got up, wrapped a towel around his waist, and one by one served his disciples. And at the end of it, in John 13, he gives this instruction. John 13, verses 14 through 16. Jesus said, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. And so as we sit there and marvel at the humble nature of Jesus, who was God to become a man who came to serve, let us not just marvel at him, let us follow his example and find ways to serve one another, not looking for advantages for ourselves because of our position in Christ or position in the world to serve. So now we come to our third subpoint: the humiliation of Jesus. How was he humble? Well, he was humble in his crucifixion. Verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I want us to think real quickly about the entire human life of Jesus. How much of it was marked by humility. That he is eternal God, prince of the world, and yet, He's born in a manger. He lived and traveled, and Scripture says he was someone who had no place to lay his head, no earthly or worldly possessions. And here in verse 8, even in his death, we see his humble nature. By dying, in, in some ways, the most humiliating death that has ever been recorded or invented, the cross take for granted how humiliating the cross actually is. We as Christians, we look to the cross and we glory in it because what Christ has done through it. But let us not forget that the cross was meant to shame. That Jesus, as he was crucified, likely was naked, as was the practice by the Romans. 
our art doesn't depict it this way because no one wants to see a depiction of Christ in such a humiliating manner. But Jesus would have been exposed to all those looking at him, exposed to the elements. The cross was designed in such a way to cause chief suffering and agony for hours on end, usually taking up to three days for a person to finally succumb to death as a result of it. And so not only being humiliated in the way that you are exposed to the world, but humiliated as the world watches you suffer, crying out in agony. In Roman culture, it was not polite to even utter the word cross because it was seen as so vulgar to even be included in our speech. And Christ humbled himself to the point going willingly to the most humiliating death that one could go to. This is the death that Jesus chose. We must ask ourselves, who humbled Jesus? Was it the Pharisees as they brought charges against him? Was it the Sadducees as they tried him? Was it Caiaphas, the high priest, Herod, or Pilate? Were these the people that humbled Jesus? No. The text says in verse 8 that he humbled himself. But this was of his choosing because it was part of his nature. No one took Jesus' life. Jesus gave it. This was his very own words in John chapter 10, verse 18. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus humbled himself. Not seeing his deity as something to be grasped for himself. Becoming like us in our humanity. Submitting to the divine plan of salvation from eternity past between God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That he would go and he would die a death on the cross. To purchase a people for himself. It is only through the obedient and humble death of Jesus that you and I can be saved. And so this is essential knowledge for you and I as brothers and sisters in Christ to know. Sometimes application as we look at the scripture is just knowing the right things to be true. And I hope this morning that you are coming to a better and right knowledge of who Jesus is. We need to know who Jesus is because the world is going to tell us about a very different Jesus. And the world is going to relate to Jesus based on who they think he is. The only way to be saved is to relate to him rightly according to what scripture and what he has revealed himself to be. That He is fully God. Has always been God. Was God as he walked here on this earth is God even now. But he has added human nature to who he is. That Jesus now is not just God, but he is still human. He is our resurrected Lord. This is essential knowledge for you as a Christian to know. And this is why catechism, question and answer, like we're doing early in our service, is so important. We'll get to this in a number of weeks. Two of our questions, 15 weeks from now or so, is 
why must the Redeemer be truly human? Preview that answer with you. That in human nature, he might on our behalf perfectly obey the whole law and suffer the punishment for human sin and also that he might sympathize in our weakness, that this is our savior, he is human. But we also must hold in tension, why must the redeemer be truly God? That because of his divine nature, his obedience and suffering would be perfect and effective and also that he would be able to bear the righteous anger of God against sin and yet overcome death put in my own words, a little simpler. Why did Jesus need to be human? Because he needed to take our place. Can't take our place unless he's one of us. But why did he need to be fully God? Because you had an infinite debt that could only be paid by an infinite person. That only his death, the death of a divine human being would be enough pay for your sins and my sins and the sins of all those who would put their faith and trust in Jesus. We must have this right knowledge because we must know who Jesus is if we're to relate to him rightly. But not just right knowledge, we need right action. Verse 5, which is how we started our passage this morning, is have this mind among yourselves which is also in Christ Jesus. And it goes on to talk about the humble nature of who Jesus is. So we must know who he is so that we can have this same mind and walk according to his example. And so I stated earlier that Jesus was not a grasper, but a giver. Therefore, you should not be a grasper, but a giver as well. You do indeed have rights. You should be treated a certain way, respectfully, lovingly. You're free to spend time the way that you want to spend it or your money. But are you going to use the advantages that you have in life for yourself, be a grasper, or are you going to have the mind of Christ who had every advantage because he was very God but gave those up to serve others? Jesus said he came to serve, not to be served. Is that your mind? Are you coming to be served by other people or to serve others with the love and knowledge of Christ? There are many who come to church services with the full expectation that I am here to be served. And if you do not serve me in the way that I deserve to be served, then I'm leaving. And my hope is that every Christian, no matter where they fellowship, whether it's here or another gospel preaching church, is there with the mind of Christ to serve others, to count others more significant than yourselves, much like we talked about last week, to be humble in nature. And if I can, with our own church here at Harvest, just point out that we need servants. We need to serve one another with the love of Christ in sometimes simple, practical ways. We have a team of people that serve here this morning making this service possible 
And quite honestly, we would love to have more people on that team. That would be a service to us in sharing the load. But as we start ministries like men's ministry, women's ministry, as we gather and fellowship with one another on a regular basis, look for ways to be a blessing and to serve other people outside of these gatherings in real tangible ways. Whether it's through a phone call, pulling someone aside for prayer, providing meals, exercising hospitality. We are here to serve one another just as Christ served us. And Christ in his humility was obedient and sacrificing himself for the benefit of others. It's through his sacrifice that we have the gift of salvation. And so if he could sacrifice and give that much, what are you and I willing to sacrifice for the benefit of others, brothers and sisters in Christ? What areas are you saying are off limits to the Lord? I would encourage you to spend some time praying about those. Maybe you're extra guarded of your time. Maybe you don't want to give up certain recreations. Maybe you are holding on to too many of your worldly possessions and you're saying that sacrifice is too great. Well, that was not the mind of Christ. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So have this mind in you that was also in Christ Jesus, that you would sacrifice for his bride, his church, to bring honor and glory to his name. And so these are the ways in this text in which we see Jesus' humble nature, his humiliation, and now in verses 9 through 11, we see his exaltation. Verse 9 says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and every uh, tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That Christ, because of his humble sacrifice, his humble obedience, is highly, is super exalted, is the idea that this text is saying. He's given a new name above every name. If you've read the scriptures, particularly in the Old Testament, you know that names served a very special significance. Names were of great importance. And there were a number of times in a few people's lives in which God gave people new names. Think of Abraham, once called Abram. But God says, no, because of my covenant with you, because of my promise, I'm going to change your name to Abraham so that all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. See a similar name change with one of his um, descendants, Jacob. Jacob, then given a name by God, Israel, renamed. We see examples even in the New Testament of the Apostle Paul, who was once Saul, but after his conversion, given the name Paul. And so this is significant. Names have great importance. All these are signs of the transformation, God's plan of redemption, that he uses people. And yet here, we see that Jesus is also given a name. And so what name is Jesus given? There's a bit of an argument here on terms of what this text means. Maybe it's just God saying the name Jesus will have special significance from here on out. There are some commentators who read this passage that way, that that is the chief point being made here. 
And if I'm honest, that's kind of my understanding before I studied this week, but I've since been convinced that what's getting at here is that God is now bestowing on Jesus the name and the title Lord. Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus wasn't Lord, but because of what he has done, because of his humble obedience, because of his death on the cross, because of his work of salvation, achieving the goal, he is now given officially this title for that completed work, Lord. And there is special significance here because the title Lord is a title of chief deity and position. Let me give you a little bit of the backstory here. In the Old Testament, there are many names for God, but his most proper and holy name was Yahweh. So much so that tradition in Judaism was not to utter the name Yahweh ever for fear of breaking the commandment, you shall not say the Lord's name in vain. So if you were reading the scriptures and the scriptures were to have Yahweh on the page, they wouldn't even write it correctly. They would take the consonants of Yahweh and provide different vowels. That's actually where we get the term Jehovah from when you read that phonetically, but truthfully what it says is Yahweh. And in the public reading of scriptures, they would say Lord. They would say Lord. So if you ever see the all caps L-O-R-D in your scriptures, that is God's most proper name, Yahweh, but we still in our tradition say Lord. And that this was a name reserved exclusively for God. Isaiah 45, 18 says this, for, th for thus says the Lord who created the heavens, he is God who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. And so for the believing person and the God of the Bible to call anybody Lord was to call them God. And this got Christians in trouble because the command throughout the Roman Empire was that you were to utter, Caesar is Lord. The Christians would not. They would not do it. They would not call a mere man by the same title that they call their divine savior, Jesus. So many were persecuted, imprisoned. That in many ways is why Paul himself is in jail as he writes this because he refuses to call Caesar or anyone else Lord. To confess that Christ is Lord is to confess that he is God, that he is the Messiah, that he is the anointed one. He is the Savior. Lord means God. And so this is the new name that was bestowed upon Jesus. And the picking of names is a very important action. Maybe you went through this as you've experienced having children, the toil of what it is to come up with a name that seems to fit just right. Some people find it easier than others. I have a member of my family, my sister-in-law actually, who struggles more than others in this regard. You know, all throughout the pregnancy, having some idea of some names, but having pretty much all of her children with the exception of one go days in the hospital nameless because you need to see this person needs to accurately represent who they are. This name means something. It's what we identify with their personhood. And so while I tease her for that, in some ways, I do admire her conviction there that names are important. All my nieces and nephews do indeed have names now. 
But in the same way, God the Father waited. He waited to bestow this title, this name on Jesus until his work was finished. And now because it's finished, Jesus is indeed Lord, highly exalted. That this name, the name of Jesus, Lord Jesus, at his name, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord in heaven and on earth and under the earth. This is his name. It captures who he is completely. Do you know Jesus in this way? Have you called Jesus Lord? Everyone will call him Lord. That we can know for certain. That's what scripture speaks of here. Every knee, every tongue, heaven, earth, under the earth. When they see Jesus in his glory, in his splendor, in his exaltation, will confess him as Lord. But for the Christian, that day is today. That we get to call him Lord today with great joy and worship him. But that day for the non-Christian, for those still lost in their sin, they'll utter those words, but not with great joy, but with fear and trembling, knowing that their fate, apart from Christ, is hopeless. Some will confess Jesus as Lord with great joy. Others will confess with great despair and anguish. But all will confess. And so who do you confess Jesus to be? Is he just that historical figure who's been exaggerated over time in terms of what he's done and who he is? Is he a messenger from God? Is he maybe someone who became a God? Or is he that eternal person? That word in the beginning, who became flesh, who died on a cross, who rose again and is coming again in glory and splendor to make all things new. I hope you know who Jesus is. And I hope, as those of us who know who Jesus is, that we follow in his humble nature as we live our lives because we try to be self-exalting people. We had this in our own prayer time of our own self-righteousness, our own pride, that our sin pulls us that way. That as we try to exalt ourselves, all we are doing is setting ourselves up for failure and for shame because the exalted will be humbled and the humble will be exalted. These are the words of Christ in Matthew 23, 12. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. It takes a humble person to come to the Lord in faith to ask forgiveness of their sins to, through Jesus Christ. And when you do that, you know that when Christ comes again, you will come with him in glory. But if you're someone that's still trying to prove yourself to the world, to others, maybe even to God, to earn your way, to earn your favor before him, just know that humility is around the corner, that God will humble you one way or the other. Hopefully, humbling you to bring you to saving faith. But if not that, he will humble you in his righteous judgment of your sin. So as we close in prayer, 
I want to ask that the Lord would humble each and every one of us in this room. Maybe for the first time, as we come to saving faith in Christ, or at the very least, anew, as we seek to have the mind that was with Christ Jesus. So would you join me in closing prayer? Heavenly Father, we come before you now, giving you honor and glory for this great plan of salvation. Lord, that precedes even us, that precedes even your creation, that this was in the very mind of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, before you spoke anything into existence. That Christ, before you took on humanity, Lord, you were humble in nature. You demonstrated that in your life. You demonstrated that chiefly, most of all, in your death. And we ask that each one of us would be humbled by the work of your Spirit on our hearts. That we would see that there is no path to heaven apart from that which has been offered to us through Christ Jesus. No way to earn favor with you, God. No way to cover our sins except through the blood of Jesus. May we be humble enough to admit this. May we be humble enough to cling to you in faith. If there are any here in this room who have yet to put their faith and trust in Jesus, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would do that work, that they would confess in their heart even now that Jesus Christ is Lord and all that that entails, his deity, his humanity, his death, his resurrection, ascension, and coming again. For all of us as brothers and sisters here have put our faith and trust in you, Lord Jesus, will we walk in humility, serving one another, loving one another, sacrificing for one another, as you have demonstrated for us. And may all of this be to your glory and your honor. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.